Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Dr. Stephen Meyer. You are most welcome, sir. It's great to be with you, Paul. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Now, Stephen received his PhD from Cambridge University here in England in the philosophy of science. He directs the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute in Seattle in America and has authored Darwin's Doubt and Signature in the Cell. His latest book is The Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries that Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. And I have my own copy here, so I do recommend it. So um, if I may ask, you argue in your book, Return of the God Hypothesis, that three scientific discoveries provide empirical evidence, not just of intelligent design, but for the existence of a personal God. Could you, first of all, kindly outline the three discoveries in cosmology, physics and biology that indicate intelligent design? Right. Well, there's a a fairly well-known quote from uh, Richard Dawkins, who says that the universe has precisely the properties we should expect if at bottom there's no purpose, no design, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference where blind, pitiless indifference is for him a shorthand for the idea of a completely materialistic uh, cosmos where Mm. uh, all things have come about by undirected material processes. Uh, In fact, there have been three major discoveries about the origin of the universe, about the structure of the universe, and about the origin and nature of life over the last century that are uh, most surprising from a materialistic or scientific atheist point of view, Mm. and instead are precisely what one would expect from uh, a theistic design hypothesis, if you will. Mm. Uh, And the first of those discoveries is that the universe, the material universe of matter, space, time, and energy, as best we can tell, had a beginning a finite time ago. Uh, This is a a consequence of both developments in observational astronomy, the discovery of the expanding universe and the red red shifted light coming from distant galaxies, um, as well as developments in theoretical physics, in particular, the development of Einstein's theory of general relativity, his great theory of gravity, and um, uh, the the solution to his field equations by uh, Stephen Hawking, Roger Penrose, George Ellis in the 1960s and early 70s, suggesting that the universe began from a true singularity. Now, there are some ways to try to get around that, but in the book I show that even those ways of circumventing the singularity theorems end up themselves having theistic implications. And why why would the beginning of the universe suggest a a, a theistic explanation? Well, it certainly does not suggest a materialistic one, um, because if matter itself, if matter and energy themselves have have a a point of origin a finite time ago, then before matter and energy begin, before space and time begin, there's no matter or energy there to do the causing of the universe. You can't explain the origin of the universe physically if if the the physical universe itself comes into existence at a point of time, at that point of origin. Um, Now, there's a lot more to say about that, but let's move to the second discovery. That is that the structure of the universe has been finely tuned against all odds and for no underlying theoretical or logical reason Mm. uh, to allow for the possibility of life in the universe. Indeed, even basic chemistry is impossible without many of these so-called fine-tuning parameters falling within very narrow ranges or tolerances. 
some of the, the leading physicists have described our universe as a fortunate universe or even a Goldilocks universe mm. where the fundamental parameters of physics, the I, strength I, of gravitational attraction or the masses of the elementary particles or the, uh, <clears throat> the precise um, strength of the force that causes the expansion of the universe and on and on where each of these parameters are just right. Not too strong, not too weak, not too fast, not too slow, not right. too heavy, not too weak. And to many physicists, this is suggested, as Fred Hoyle put it, a common sense interpretation of the, of the, the data suggests that a super intellect uh, has monkeyed with physics and chemistry, has been at work. Mm. Um, now, there's a, an alternative to that hypothesis, well known as the multiverse, and we can discuss that. But mm. um, this is a third big discovery that was unexpected from a materialistic standpoint, that the universe would depend, that life in the universe would depend on such exquisite fine tuning. Mm. Uh, the third big discovery comes in the realm of biology. And I, mm. I would say this isn't a single discovery. There are multiple discoveries about the complexity of life that suggest its design. But the most fundamental of those, and the one that I focus on most in the new book, is the discovery that the, uh, the DNA molecule contains information in a digital form a digital or alphabetic or typographic form that's necessary for the production of proteins, which are in turn necessary for maintaining all forms of cellular life. So mm. at the foundation of life, we have the discovery of, of what Richard Dawkins himself, himself has characterized as a machine code. Mm. Uh, Bill Gates says DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. Leroy Hood, one of our great biotechnologists here in the States, simply describes DNA as containing, quote, digital code. And mm. Dawkins himself has acknowledged how, how surprising this is in a tweet last summer in response to an oh, really? animation that, that an Australian group put out showing the process of uh, uh, information processing inside the cell. Probably, I think it was the DNA replication system. He said he was, he was not, knocked sideways with wonder at the intricacy of the data, uh, the data processing system at work inside wow. the cell. So th these things are not things that you would expect from blind, pitiless indifference. In the case of the, the digital code and DNA, it suggests a master programmer. In the case of the fine tuning, it most uh, obviously supports a fine tuner. And in the case of the origin of the universe itself a finite time ago, it certainly does not uh, uh, support any sort of materialistic explanation or, or, or suggest any kind of materialistic explanation, but instead it requires um, the need to posit some entity which is not bound by space and time, which is not itself material, and which is yet capable of initiating a great change of state from nothing to everything physical that exists. Mm. Uh, to an awful lot of scientists and philosophers, that has sounded um, uh, at least borderline theistic, let's say. So, um, I, I, and those are the three big discoveries. And in the book, mm. I develop a method of analyzing those three classes of evidence or utilize a method of analyzing those those three classes of evidence that's known as um, the method of uh, multiple competing hypotheses or inference to the best explanation. Mm. And I argue that theism provides the best overall explanation for those three great discoveries that we have uh, that modern science has made about the origin structure, uh, the origin structure of the universe and the origin of life. Mm. Okay, well, thank you for that, that summary. But you, you argue quite strongly that it's not just uh, indicative of intelligent design, but of a of the existence of a personal God. And this is really the next question: Who or what is this designer or designers? Is it a being or beings within the universe? Because it strikes me, for example, the life on Earth 
in, in principle, could have been created by a, an incredibly intelligent uh, alien agency and not necessarily by God, logically speaking. Or, as you say, is it a transcendent being outside of the universe? So how do you get from your observations of the three discoveries in cosmology, physics and biology to a personal God? What, what is the um, link to that? Of reasoning, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is really why I wrote this book, because the first two books, Signature in the Cell, was a book about the evidence for intelligent design in DNA and uh, why that why intelligent design provides a better explanation for the origin of that information than any of the chemical evolutionary theories that have been proposed to explain the origin of the first life. The second book is also about the problem of the origin of information as it arises in evolutionary biology when we look at events such as the Cambrian explosion or other major uh, abrupt appearances of biological form in the fossil record. To build new forms of life, we now know that you need a lot of new information. And so just like in the computer world, if you wanna give your computer a new function, you've got to give it some new code. And to build uh, new, new body plans, you need new cell types, uh, you need new organs and tissues. Therefore, you need new cell types. New cell types require new proteins, requires more genetic information. Mm. So I was mainly concerned with the origin of biological information in the first two books yep. and did not attempt to identify the designing intelligence responsible because, as you say, there were two possibilities. One is that it, the intelligence necessary to produce the, in, the information required to build new forms of life um, would be a, an agency within the cosmos, an imminent yep. intelligence, yep. Uh, a.k.a. an alien, perhaps, yep. um, uh, or secondly, it was uh, another possibility is that the information was had a transcendent source from mm. uh, uh, a being with the attributes that uh, theists typically ascribe to God. Yeah. Um, so, though, in the book, I addressed precisely those two possibilities as well as some of the other competing worldviews. It's interesting to note that. Uh, this idea of uh, an alien intelligence being responsible for what Dawkins has elsewhere called a signature of intelligence, describing the DNA. Really? Uh, well, he actually, he actually, he, did Dawkins actually use that expression himself? He, he said in, a, in an interview at the end of a film called Expelled, he was being interviewed by the uh, American uh, comedian, uh, uh, economist, and scholar, Ben Stein, <laughs> quite an intelligent fellow. And yes. he was pressing Dawkins on this question of the origin of life. And Dawkins acknowledged that no one knows how life first originated no. by evolutionary processes. And so Stein asked him, well, what, what's, the what's the possibility that intelligent design might be part yeah. of the answer to that? And he said, well, it could be, but it would have to, because it, it, it might be that there is a signature of intelligence inside the cell. Uh -huh. But if, if, if that signature of intelligence is to be explained um, um, by, by an intelligence, it would have had to have been a being that evolved somewhere else in the cosmos oh, and then life here. So he, he was uh, floating the idea of what's called panspermia. Mm. And interestingly, um, Francis Crick also floated that idea in a little book called Life Itself back in 1981. And mm. then the, 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 suge the, the suggestion was, uh, I wouldn't say ridicule, but it, was, it became a, a, a little bit of um, a, 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 an object of, of some, some, uh, some joking, at least. And he kind of, at that point, said, I'm not going to speculate anymore about the origin of life. Yeah, because the ridicule, because uh, the whole thing about little green men is an yeah, immediate right, right. Uh, deflator for any uh, uh, hypothesis that could come from, but but still the theoretical point remains uh, for, for yourself. What wh why posit a a, a transcendent uh, being outside of the universe right. rather That's than 
uh, an agency within the universe like aliens. Well, yeah, uh, very good. And uh, the 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 short answer to that is that the transcendent intelligence provides a better overall explanation of the three key facts that we that I just I just described. Right. Um, let's. So what I do in the books, I actually take the panspermia hypothesis seriously and say, all right, d- does it provide a good explanation for the origin of life? Well, sort of. Uh, you could, if if indeed in our uniform and repeated experience, which I've argued in in my books, mm. uh, the only known cause of uh, large amounts of digital information is a mind. Then you have these two possibilities: an imminent or a transcendent intelligence. Exactly. Um, but if you posit the idea that life on Earth here was seeded by an intelligent agent that lived on another planet that itself evolved by an undirected process of evolution, starting from some process of chemical evolution that gets you from chemicals in a, in an extraterrestrial prebiotic soup to the first living cell, you still have the problem of the uh, explaining the origin of the information necessary to get life going. Hmm. And we know of only one cause in all of our experience for the origin of information, especially when you, when we find it in a digital form, whether we're talking about a hieroglyphic inscription or, or a computer program or a paragraph in a book or information embedded in a radio signal, Hmm. uh, information always comes from a mind. And so positing, a process of evolution out in space, a process of chemical evolution to get life going, merely pushes the question. Doesn't kick kick the the uh, kick the can down the road. It it, it pushes the, the question out into space without ever really providing an ultimate explanation for the origin of information. It doesn't posit a cause that is known to produce the effect in question, which is a, a mm-hmm. key criterion of a good explanation. Uh, a key criterion that needs to be met of, a, of an adequate explanation. Whereas mm-hmm. positing a, a mind is such a cause because we know that minds do generate information. Yeah. But beyond that, the uh, the panspermia hypothesis doesn't explain the fine-tuning of the universe, the fine-tuned uh-huh. structure of the universe, which is a precedent condition of its future, of, of the future evolution of any uh, alien right. intelligence within the cosmos. No You're being- saying the exquisite fine-tuning is an absolute prerequisite anyway for carbon-based life to evolve. And one can't just simply assume that as a, an a unnecessary phenomenon to explain. That, that itself is remarkable, the, the, the existence of the universe and its fine-tuning, uh, as as the prerequisite for life to evolve, so you're you're, you're bolting the three explanations together uh, to present your overall argument, I suppose. And, and this is this is what the method of multiple competing hypothesis uh, hypotheses or inference to the best explanation does. It, it examines right. the facts that need to be explained, and then says, "All right, let's compare the competing explanations and see which provides the best overall explanations of the mm. uh, explanation of the facts at hand." Mm. It happens that that panspermia or the space alien designer might explain the origin of life or the information necessary, although only, only by begging an unanswered earlier question. Yeah. But it certainly doesn't explain the origin of the universe itself upon which its future evolution would depend or the, yeah. or the origin of the finely tuned structure of the universe, which is, again, a prerequisite of its future evolution. No mm-hmm. cause, no effect can precede its cause. And so the, the space alien doesn't... <laughs> might explain one of the three facts, but certainly not all three. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, okay. whereas positing a transcendent intelligence uh, can explain the origin of the universe itself, as well as the fine tuning, it's the sort of thing you would expect to see mm. from an intelligent transcendent God, a finely tuned universe that has a definite beginning in time. After all, the first words of the Judeo-Christian scriptures are in the beginning. Mm. Um, 
But then that raises the question, well, what about the origin of life? Could a deistic creator um, uh, provide an equally good explanation as, as to, for example, a theistic creator? And whereas deism posits the action of a, of a, of a divine being only at the beginning of the universe, yeah. theism posits the action of a divine being at the beginning of the universe and also down the timeline, if you will, after, long after. And since we have evidence of design in biology long after the beginning of the universe, I argue that theism provides a better overall explanation than deism for the three big facts. Uh, theism, or deism might explain the origin of the universe and the fine-tuned structure of the universe, but it doesn't do a good job of explaining the evidence we have for, uh, as I put it elsewhere, big infusions of information into our biosphere right. long after T equals zero, after the beginning of the universe. Yeah, no, I, I see that. Okay, if we can just change tack to a bit of history now. Um, sure. In your uh, book, in the first chapter, uh, is entitled The Judeo-Christian Origins of Modern Science. It's a fascinating survey of, of uh, the origins of modern science. And there's a bit of preamble before I come to my question, if I may. Science in the Muslim world was very advanced before the rise of scientific inquiry in Christian Europe and made substantial contributions to mathematics, astronomy, medicine and physics during the golden age of Islam, roughly from the, uh, the 9th century through, through to the 13th century. Some commentators have criticized the first chapter of your book entitled The Judeo-Christian Origins of Modern Science for its Orientalist Bias, as they call it. There, there is now a growing body of historians who recognize that Islam did have very significant scientific activity, as we know it today, in the Muslim world. Now, one example is the circulation of the heart, which was known uh, long before William Harvey allegedly discovered it. Uh, and optics was well known before Isaac Newton. He was the MP in Cambridge, of course, Isaac Newton. But optics was well known uh, before his time. And see the work above all, Ibn al-Haytham, who is regarded as the father of the modern scientific method. By the way, the BBC, there's an article uh, uh, about uh, him. It actually says, he calls him the father of the modern scientific method. Why did you exclude the Islamic contributions to science from the discussion altogether? Uh, well, let's back up and reframe that a little bit, and I'll come mm. back to your question. Um, I think it's important to, to understand the Judeo-Christian contributions to what we call modern science first in their own context, because mm -hmm. I was concerned about the story of science in the West, because mm -hmm. it's been in the West that we've had um, the, the, um, the rise of modern science, but also the loss of that theistic perspective in the 19th century and its return with discoveries in Western science and cosmology, physics, biologies we've been discussing. Mm. Um, and so my, the, the story of the book concerned that, uh, if you will, rise, fall, rise plot structure, that there was, uh, that, that, um, that the Judeo-Christian worldview made a uh, very significant contribution to the rise of modern science, that that perspective was lost and now it's coming back. Um, I didn't mean to deny that Islam had um, made a contribution or had there, there was thriving science within Islam. For, what, for some reason, and this is an historical question, the, uh, the, 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 the scientific enterprise that uh, did not have the durability 
within Islam that it's had within the Judeo-Christian West? And that's another historical question. So there's a lot of there's a lot of important historical questions to look at in that. I wasn't mainly concerned to tell that story, but I do think there's something unique about the Judeo-Christian contribution. And and um, and so in the book, I look at three main presuppositions that were important to the rise of modern science. The first was the intelligibility of nature. Mm. Um, and, and that is the, the idea that because um, the universe was made, life in the universe were made by an intelligent agent. This is the assumption mm. of, of the biblical Judeo-Christian perspective, that, that nature itself manifests a design and order, uh, a rationality that can be understood by the human mind. Hmm. Because our minds are also made in the image of that same that same Creator. Now that that's a that's a, a presupposition that is held in common with by all three Abrahamic faiths, hmm. and so it doesn't really detract from my argument that another theistic tradition uh, had had some. No, uh, you know the point. Your point you, you is well made when it comes to the Judeo Christian tradition. It's just the it was a, a somewhat surprising omission of the uh, very substantial scientific. Um, enterprises that existed before uh, Christianity in the West got going with, with science. Uh, I mentioned uh, Ibn al-Haytham, uh, who's regarded as the father of the modern scientific method itself. And this predates uh, Christian, um, it predates Newton, obviously, uh, and other. I'm not, I, I'm not sure I would accept that. I think that the things that were going on at uh, Oxford in particular with Robert Gross' test and the the method of uh, essentially what we would now call isolation of variables. I mean, this has a very deep roots in late medieval Catholic uh, philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the, there, there is. I, um, everybody has to start a, a story someplace. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, I wanted to tell a story about the the return of the God hypothesis within Western science, and so mm-hmm. it's important to tell the contribution. I do think there's something, however, and I, I'm I'm writing a response to some of these criticisms now. I've had a long conversation with a historian, Steve Fuller, about this. Who's quite expert on, and, and there are a couple of things within Islam that, that seemed, uh, A, to contribute to modern science, because they had the same basic theistic framework as the Judeo-Christian. Yeah, the, Quran, the Quran also speaks of the, uh, of the universe being ordered and uh, inviting people to examine, use their minds to think about God's creation. And so there's, uh, it's asking, inviting people, inviting science in a way to uh, develop and, and, and grow. Uh, as a presupposition, uh, perhaps in a similar way to the Christian uh, Christian view. So it's not unique to um, uh, Christianity and Islam. I'm just looking at an article here, The First True Scientist. is an article on the BBC News Channel uh, by Professor Jim Al-Khalili from the University of Surrey. He's a, a physicist, um, and he, he calls um, uh, Ibn al-Hayyam the first greatest scientist of equal stature. He says, for without doubt, Another great physicist who is worthy of ranking up alongside Newton is a scientist born in AD 965 in what is now Iraq. Um, and most people in the West will never, ever have even have heard of him, he says. But as a physicist myself, he stands in awe of this man's contribution to his field and so on and so on. So uh, I, it, I, that, it's not, I have, you know, I have, I have no uh, uh, particular reason to dispute any of that. And mm. the the. I want to tell a story about the rise and fall of the God hypothesis within Western science. But mm. I, I do also think that there is an, an interesting historical question as to why science was not durable in the, in the uh, Islamic Middle East. Mm. And uh, I think some of that has to do with um, uh, perhaps um, 
one of the things that happened in the West, which was the the, the Protestant Reformation. Um, mm. And I think this is a, something that I, in my in my telling of the of the the story, both there's contributions from both Catholic medieval theology and philosophy, and also the Protestant Reformation. And one of the things about the Reformation was that it decentralized uh, control over knowledge. And as a result of that, it it, ha- it its contribution, I think, to the rise of modern science in the West was to make it more durable in that there wasn't a centralized authority to say this or that can or can't be considered scientific. No, I mean, that has a history of colonialism and military and economic uh, dominance uh, of certain countries in the Muslim world may have been a fact. I'm I'm not an expert on this. It's just, but moving on then perhaps to, um, uh, I'm just reading your book on page 260. You, uh, you you conclude, uh, perhaps surprisingly, um, I'm quoting here. So the evidence of design in life taken by itself does not necessarily point to a transcendent intelligence or God. So my question really is, do you see a difference between a biological designer and a cosmological designer? And is it easy to argue for the existence of God based on one or the other? And you've touched on this already briefly, I think. But Yeah, what, what I did was develop a, a, a cumulative case based mm. on ensemble of evidences that needed to be jointly explained. Mm. Uh, and so my argument is that a, a theistic designer provides the best overall explanation for those three factors. The, mm. the, part, part you're, the, the passage you're reading there is a passage that is uh, acknowledging that you have these two possibilities that we were discussing mm. before, either a transcendent or an imminent intelligence. Yeah. And in subsequent portions of the book, I then explain why the considerations of causal adequacy, which is a key criterion of a a good overall explanation, lead to uh, us to favor or should lead to favoring a theistic explanation over a a space alien designer explanation, if Mm. you will. Mm. Okay. Now, um, just slightly more um, philosophical question. In in your book, you mention highly complex designs and specified complexities. Can we categorically rule out that there can be no scientific explanations for these things? I mean, if, if a free God created these contingencies, would it not be possible for the same free God to create a contingency wherein we can have scientific explanations, even for highly complex things? Well, um, I don't concede one, one uh, premise of your question, which is that positing intelligent design is uh, not a scientific explanation. I think what you mean is that um, is there is it not possible that there is a materialistic or n- completely naturalistic explanation for specified complexity? Right. Um, and the the kind of argument I'm making is one that is an empirical argument. So, as for categorical exclusions, that's the sort of thing you do in deductive logic. But um, you know, I'm not sa- the the argument is based on what we know about the causal. Uh, the cause and effect structure of the world. And based on what we know about the cause and effect structure of the world, the only known cause of large amounts of specified complexity or functional information or specified information where all three of those terms are synonymous uh, is is a mind. There's a famous information theorist, uh, Henry Quastler, who was one of the pioneers in applying uh, information theoretic concepts to the analysis of biological systems. And he said, uh, in an offhand observation, 
the creation of information is habitually associated with conscious activity. That's what we know from our study of, of the universe, mm. uh, of cause and effect structure of the universe. Now, there is one sort of logically, um, I think, compelling um, consideration against um, at least one type of naturalistic explanation. Some people have said, well, couldn't we discover a law of nature that explains how information arises? But that's actually, when, when you think carefully about what's just been said there, that, that reflects a kind of um, uh, categorical problem. It's an incoherency. The laws of nature, whether expressed as algorithms or differential equations, describe repeating patterns of order, things that repeat uh, under the same conditions over and over again. Mm. And that's, that's what allows us to describe nature in, in these highly compressed ways with, with uh, differential equations or algorithms. Uh, information in the strict uh, sense of the information sciences is not compressible to a simple rule or law, but rather it has a property known as complexity. It's, it defies reduction to such a simple rule. To get that across without uh, maybe in more um, accessible way, think of the difference between um, a repeating sequence, T-H-E, 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 the, 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 or a mantra, um, 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 and the kind of communication that you and I are sharing now, where the, if you spell out the words, there's a highly aperiodic, um, unpredictable character to the sequence, mm. and yet th there's a specificity to arrangement that allows us to, to convey information or, or meaning in this case. So um, when we talk about information and DNA, we're not talking about a, rep a repetitive sequence of symbols. Like, for example, we're not talking about the kind of repetition of, of chemical elements that you would find in a crystal, NaCl, NaCl, NaCl. That's in, in, the, cate in the categorical uh, or um, in the categories of information sciences, that would be considered highly ordered or redundant, but not informational or complex. So, I, it, I think it's, it, is, um, it, it is not a plausible thing at all. In fact, I think it's, it, it's, it's incoherent to posit a law as an explanation for information because laws and information are categorically opposite. One mm -hmm. implies redundancy, the other implies complexity. I understand this. This is way above my pay grade. Uh, but it, it just strikes me that if, if in principle, if science, if there was to be a scientific explanation one day, maybe not in our lifetimes, which could in purely imminent terms explain the development, origin, the evolution of the, these phenomena that you mentioned, that that would then take away this uh, as an argument for the existence of God. But is it not possible that God could have created but it is the case that God created all contingent things, whether it be rocks or highly complex systems or a tree or a planet or DNA. And it all is evidence of intelligent design, not just those highly complex, apparently designed things that we can marvel at and right to marvel at. But even the more mundane, apparently mundane thing, all the contingencies are evidence for a necessary being, which is in the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, called God. So we're not, in a sense, held hostage to science not being able to explain in its own way, in its own methodology, these incredible phenomena you're alluding to, because we're pointing to the bigger picture of all of the universe. Do you see what I mean? Philosophically. Uh, I, I mean, it's a common objection. So, of course, I see what you mean. But I, I think right. there's something in the in the way you framed it that I uh, premise that I don't concede again. And that is that positing mind as an explanation is not 
uh, intelligent design as an explanation. It's not based solely on the inadequacy of naturalistic explanations, whether they be evolutionary or law-like or some combination of the two, but rather it's also, it, it, it is based in part on the inability of naturalistic explanations to account for the origin of information or the origin of the fine tuning, which is a, right. another form of information. But it's also based on our uniform and repeated experience of what does produce those kinds of effects. Right. Uh, when, when we discovered not only digital code, but a complex information storage, processing, uh, a storage transmission and processing system inside the cell. Um, and when we've discovered integrated circuitry that's required for animal development. And when we've discovered molecular machines that have a property of integrated complexity that we only find in our experience as a product of engineering, we've time and time again found things that we know from our uniform and repeated experience, which is the basis of all scientific reasoning. And this goes back to Darwin and Lyell and the 19th century historical sciences. Um, we have a positive reason to infer design. Now, it may be that other things that don't have the property of specified complexity hmm. um, are also at some level best explained by a creator, uh, but the, the, the strongest argument for such uh, a, a designing intelligence, I think comes from the, the, the features of living systems and the universe, which are, which in our experience are known to be produced by one and only one type of cause, that being that being a mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's very, very interesting response. Um, just to move on slightly to um, the book itself, uh, in terms of its reception by uh, the media and scientists, and, and there are some um, uh, 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 very uh, impressive uh, commendations and endorsements of the book from um, leading scientists, including a fellow of the Royal Society, uh, John Walton, and so on. But more broadly, in the more broader scientific community, how has the book been received, or, or is it yet to really percolate through to their to their awareness that it's there? Well, uh, it's a bit of both, I'd say. Um, the uh, since the since those endorsements were published, I've had an endorsement from a Nobel laureate in physics. I've been on some. Uh, who, who is that? If I may ask, Stephen, who was the who was Brian the Josephson at the University? Brian Josephson at the University of Cambridge. Uh, wow. I've been seven or eight. Um, uh, full professors of science holding titled or endowed chairs at major research in- universities that have endorsed the book. Uh, I had a fascinating conversation with Brian Keating, a leading uh, astrophysicist and cosmologist at the University of California, San Diego, uh, on on his blog uh, or on his uh, um, vi- Zoom podcast that he. Does. Oh yeah, just like this. Yep. Yeah, yeah, just like this. Cool. And uh, and mm. so I, I think there's been quite a lot of interest among scientists. Uh, but there's also been, uh, my, my, my last book was reviewed, uh, uh, Darwin's Doubt was reviewed in science by the yes. uh, uh, paleontologist Charles Marshall. This book is not, has yet to be uh, reviewed in one of those types of, of places, but right. we'll see. Uh, it's selling quite well, and uh, yes. <laughs> I think the message is getting out one way or another, so. Yeah, I'll certainly link to it in the description uh, below. It's definitely worth reading. It's an incredibly well-written, uh, erudite uh, book. Um, to definitely uh, recommend it. Uh, I mean, I, I know you produce an enormous amount in your life, but are you working on any new projects that we can look forward to? Well, this one just came out last March, so I'm really happy not to be under deadline right now, actually. <laughs> so, And there, there's, there's actually pl- uh, plenty of things to write in response to 
uh, various either criticisms or reactions to the book. I am writing something about the the uh, the whole question of Islamic science. Just to come back to our earlier discussion. Um, I'm definitely not denying an Islamic contribution to science. Right. Uh, I do think there are some interesting differences in the Judeo-Christian versus Islamic version of theism that may be responsible for that uh, the, the difference in the durability of the scientific enterprise within those two cultures. And I'm I'm um, I'm having a, a um, you know a little think about that, and I'll be writing more about that and have a response. There's a very good professor in the Midwest who who uh, queried me about this very same issue. So oh really uh, yeah. yeah so, but in any case, the 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 book really kind of it's not the book wasn't meant to de- deny the Islamic contribution, but rather uh, to kind of start the story where. Mm where in Western science, because there's a really interesting phenomenon of religion contributing to science and then the rise of a, of a materialistic worldview attached to science in the late 19th century. And mm. now the reversal of that, I think, is beginning to happen because of discoveries in scientific uh, science itself. Much mm. more concerned to critique scientific materialism than is Islamic science. That wasn't really part of the, the purpose. No, no, it would, no I, I understand that. I mean, j- just for the, the general audience, I do recommend this book, um, Lost Islamic History, Reclaiming Muslim Civilization from the Past by Firas al-Khatib. And he certainly goes into uh, many of the extraordinary uh, fundamental scientific contributions um, to science that predates Christian uh, Europe. You can read all about that in cosmology and physics and biology and, and chemistry and geology and geography. It's quite a huge, huge area. Um, uh, this is long before science in, in Christian Europe got underway. So I do recommend that book as well. The Islamic world had, had, um, had Aristotle before the Christian world, which True. I think, and this, this is where some of the subtlety of this, because that's, that's uh, in some ways a great, uh, a great, uh, inducement to study the natural world because Aristotle was interested in living things and uh, uh, in the physical world. But there were aspects of uh, Aristotelian philosophy that many historians of science also think held back mm. advanced science, in particular, this whole question of contingency. Yes. That, um, the, 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 the Greco-Roman worldview tended to see the um, the physical world as embodying a kind of logos, but mm. they assumed that the logic of the world uh, was sort of a, a best of all possible worlds. It, it was, um, and, and something that we could perceive by thinking about what seemed most logical to us. Mm. Whereas in the, in the Judeo-Christian West, the recovery of the doctrine of creation emphasized the contingency of the creation. There was an order it was impressed on the universe, but it was an order that could have been otherwise. It didn't have to conform to a singular, singular logos. And so, you know, Newton's inverse square law was uh, what he used to describe gravitation, but it might've been an inverse cube law or something else. And the only way to, to determine that was to go and to look and to see. So Robert Boyle famously said, uh, it's not the job of the natural philosopher to det- to deduce what God must have done, but instead to go and look and see uh, what? what he did do. So one, one, one possible reason for um, the lack of durability of Islamic science was its close alignment with Aristotelian thought, which was an inducement to study nature, but also in other ways held, may have held it back. Mm. Whereas in the West, you have um, 
this recovery of the doctrine of creation and a very, a very decided break with some aspects of Greek thought, in particular over this idea of a contingent order as opposed to a necessary order. You may mm-hmm. remember there's this famous decree theologically uh, in 1277 from the Pope against necessary in theology, and he, he outlaws a number of propositions mm-hmm. that people are, are advancing simply because they claim that God must have done things a certain yeah. way. Yeah. And, and so... Uh, you know, it, 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 by 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 denouncing those that those types of propositions, it ironically opened up a more empirical uh, foundation for science. So, now I think you raised an important question about the reasons for the decline in uh, scientific activity in recent centuries. But one of them surely has to be, and again, I don't know the answer. To you raised good questions, I don't know the answers. But I, I know one of the contributing factors surely must have been uh, uh, colonialism, where uh, some Western armies went and physically occupied uh, most of the Muslim world and actually prevent and suppressed uh, intellectual activity uh, there. So that, that may well have been a, a, a contributing factor, but it may not explain the underlying civilizational weakness prior to the occupation of those countries militarily by France and Britain, for example. Obviously, we, we occupied uh, Egypt and North America. North I, Africa, think, so. I think, Paul, you're right. there's a lot of interesting questions here, mm. many of which were beyond the scope of the of the book as written. But mm. some of these things have been raised. I've been looking into some of this myself and uh, uh, had, had some very interesting conversations with a couple different historians of science who who know a lot more about that period than I do. So uh, mm. yeah, it's uh, appreciate you raising it. And um, I, it, you were saying you were asking what I was working on now. Mm. In fact, I'm uh, working on a few uh, responses that have, have have come about because of people reacting to the book in different ways. So yeah. some, some of them are some things I'm, I'm researching. Others are, um, and, and another interesting thing is uh, some of the new cosmologies that have been proposed. Um, mm-hmm. There's a cosmology that has been proposed by uh, your great physicist, uh, Sir Roger Penrose, called the cyclical oh, yes. cosmology as an alternative to the Big Bang. It's a variant on the oscillating universe hypothesis, which I addressed in the book. Um, and it, it implies that, um, or it envisions the universe um, expanding, but then uh, in, in certain patches of the universe, spitting out new, 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 new sections of expansion. So you get a universe wow. birthing a new universe. Um, and some have said, well, could that, you know, get around the idea of a beginning? Probably not, but there's there's some other aspects of it that are really curious to me, and that that um, all of the oscillating universe um, models require have have an entropy problem. The the, the first os- the main oscillating universe model has the universe expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting. But as Alan Guth showed, in, uh, the great physicist from MIT in 1983, the with each expansion and contraction cycle matter and energy becomes more more dissipated mm. and therefore uh, less concentrated, less able to do work in thermodynamic right. terms. And so if we had an infinite number of such cycles, right. we would have already reached a state of nullifying equilibrium where mm. the ma- mass energy of the universe would be so dissipated, yes. entropy would have risen, we'd have a rise of entropy and, and no, no capability for doing further work and no more cycles. Mm-hmm. But since we don't live in a universe that's, that is in heat death, uh, we must not ha- have been through an infinite number of cycles. Therefore, even on an oscillating universe, there must have been a beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Penrose's model has has its own entropy problem in that he he posits a, a what he calls a phantom field, and the, and some other physicists have critiqued it because it has properties that no other known physical field has. In particular, the ability to spontaneously reset entropy in precisely the place where he needs a new universe to very convenient, yes. And and so some have said, well, maybe that's a an answer to your God hypothesis, Meyer. But I, my retort to that is, well, it really only solves the need for a God hypothesis by positing a field which has properties that are unknown in physics and which are only associated with godlike powers. You know, the, <laughs> the agency can spontaneously reduce entropy in in necessary in precise locations, but physics doesn't do that. So yeah. anyway, I, I'll be writing a few of these other new ideas and appreciate you raising them. Certainly, no, I, I appreciate your openness to further discussions based on on your work. It's really really commendable. I'm just reminded of Professor John Polkinghorne, also of Cambridge University, Professor of Mathematical Physics. Yeah. He is. I had the privilege of meeting here in London uh, when he launched a book. Uh, a very humble, uh, beautiful man. Um, but he. Um, uh, he became a, a, a equally distinguished, I think, Christian theologian uh, in his later years after he left Cambridge. And um, he was quite, I mean, he was not a man given to strong statements, but he was quite scathing of uh, this multiverse theory, which we can't get into now, I know, but as an excuse, basically, for atheists to um, get off the hook when it comes to God creating the universe, you know, we will find any concept that will get us off the hook, believing that it's incredibly fine-tuned exquisitely fine-tuned universe could possibly be the creator or creation of God. Therefore, we will posit endless multi-universes. And he was very scathing of this as a get-out for atheists. He didn't take it seriously, I don't think, as uh, a scientific proposition. Paul, may I tell a little story in closing about uh, about Sir John? And um, I knew him as a, I was a postgraduate student, and uh, he came and gave a, a very good talk on this exact topic to wow. a, a graduate um, group that I was part of. And uh, later I had the chance after I finished my PhD to interview him when he came out to the West coast of the United States, he was uh, 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 to Portland. And I was asking him about the fine tuning and, and the multiverse alternative. Yeah. And um, uh, he used to have this wonderful illustration of a, um, uh, a universe creating machine. He asked you to, to imagine oh, yes. that you landed on a space station someplace and you walk inside and there in the, in the center of it was the, the creating the universe creating machine. And there were dials and knobs and they were all set just right, representing each one of the physical parameters, the speed of light and the, the, uh, the mass of the quark and the, the, uh, the cosmological constant and so forth. And since you were a physics person, you could calculate and if you move the dial one click one way or the other, you realize life and even basic chemistry was would become impossible. And and he in in the in the talk he gave to us as postgraduates, he said, "What do you make of that?" Well, mm-hmm. later I had the chance to interview him, and I said, "Well, Sir John, what do you make?" Of <laughs> you know, the universe is like your universe creating machine, or depends on some set of parameters that are finely tuned in that way. What do you make of it? And in his understated Oxbridge way, he said. Well, he said, I don't say that the atheists are stupid. I just say that theism provides a much more satisfying explanation. And yep, that sounds in like book, yep. <laughs> in the book, I elaborated that with respect to the multiverse and to just one one point about that in, in parting, because it, it's I think it's very significant. It is the go to atheistic explanation now. Yes. And it has a problem. And that is that. If we just have all these other universes out there, but they're causally disconnected, you know, universe is by definition a causally closed system, 
then whatever happens in those other universes has no effect on what happens in our universe, and in, including on whatever process was responsible for setting the fine-tuning parameters with the values they have. So in virtue of that, multiverse advocates have recognized the need to have some sort of common cause of, of all the universes so that they can portray our universe as a kind of lucky winner of a great cosmic lottery. Right. So there's so multiverse proposals have posited universe generating mechanisms. Mm. And some have been based on string theory and others have been based on something called inflationary cosmology. And some have tried to combine the two because there's two different classes of fine tuning. And it turns out that inflationary cosmology might explain one class um, and uh, the string theoretic fine tune uh, multiverse could explain another class. So we now have the string theoretic multiverse, which, which ends up invoking numerous purely theoretical postulates in mm. addition to all the other universes. So mm. again, on the Occam's razor test, it's much yep. more complex. It's posited many more theoretical entities than the simple postulation of a single uh, theistic designer. Mm. But in addition to that, the multiverse depends upon the, these uh, universe generating mechanisms themselves, even in theory, require exquisite prior unexplained fine tuning. Right. And so you end up right back where you started yeah. with no ultimate explanation for the fine tuning. And yet in our experience, when we encounter finely tuned systems, whether we're talking about French recipes or internal combustion engines or Swiss watches, in other words, systems where there are a number of parameters that have to be improbably set to achieve an overall outcome or function, invariably, again, the only known cause of those types of systems is a mind. So insofar as the multiverse has not provided an ultimate causal explanation for the origin of fine tuning, but we do know of an adequate causal explanation for fine tuning yep. from our experience. The fine tuning, I think as Sir John and Fred Hoyle and, mm -hmm. and uh, Luke Barnes and many other physicists who've studied this, this uh, question carefully have concluded, intelligent design or the a theistic design hypothesis, I think does provide the best overall explanation. Mm. Well, well, we'll leave it there because I know you have to go, sir. Well, thank you very much indeed, Dr. Stephen Myers, for your, uh, your time and your expertise and your lucidity in explaining highly complex ideas to uh, people like me who are not physicists. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for your excellent questions and uh, a really good in-depth discussion of of many facets of yes, I know we, hypothesis idea. We went all over the place, and we only we only really scratched the surface clearly. But I, I will um, link to uh, this book, which I do recommend, is now endorsed apparently by a Nobel Prize winner in physics. So um, we're in safe hands uh, there. Lots of uh, great reviews on the back as well. It's available in paperback as well as hardback. Is it available in Kindle as well? I assume is it? It is available in Kindle, but not yet paperback. The, oh, the Harper One will bring it out in the new year of 2023. But uh, it's, it's just it's just hardback and uh, ebook and that sort of thing. Okay, yeah. we can still get hold of it. That's fantastic. Well, thank you very much indeed for your time, sir. And thank you. Until next thank time. Thank you, Paul. Yes, excellent. I really appreciate the conversation. And you too. Take care. Bye bye.